All right, Ephesians chapter 4. Um, that's where we are. Okay, so today marks a, a pretty massive change in just the preaching and um, the book of Ephesians. So this is a day where the, where the kind of the, the page is turned in, in, a, in a kind of a, a way of thinking about it for Paul. And so this is what's happened so far. Let me just kind of catch you up, especially if you're new with us um, over the last couple of weeks. Um, the last seven weeks, we've been in the first three chapters of Ephesians. And here's what we've got out of the last three chapters is Paul has been very diligent to define his doctrine. And so he's been very diligent to define what the gospel is for us. Okay, now if you just flip back, go back to chapter 1. You're just going to start seeing this gospel defined all throughout 1, 2, and 3. Both, all three of those chapters. And so in chapter 1, you've got the gospel coming out in verse 4, where God initiates. He chooses us. In verse 5, he adopts us. In verse 7, he redeems us. In verse um, 14, he seals us with the Holy Spirit. Okay, you get to the next chapter in chapter 4, you're going to see that we are in, in chapter, or in verses 1, 2, 3, that we're hopelessly sinful people, that, that we are dead in our sin, we are unresponsive to God. So, so he speaks and we are completely unresponsive. I mean, we are that teenager, right? And, and so we're completely unresponsive to God, but it's not just the unresponsive element. It's that we are also in active rebellion. So, so we're not listening and we have a finger up in the air. So it's both, okay, now we're into what a teenage, right? Okay, now we're there. And so, so this is our condition before God. And then all of a sudden, look at 2-4. Um, because of God's rich mercy, great mercy, because of his great love toward us, in verse 5 it says he makes us alive. You come down in, in chapter 2, in verse 13, we are separated from God, and all of a sudden, because of the cross, because of the gospel, Paul's defining it all throughout these chapters. In verse, chapter 2, verse 13, he says we're, we're far, we're separated, and Christ has brought us near. So he not only reconciles us to God, but also, and then you get in verse 14 and 15, he reconciles us to each other. So, so he's very diligent to define the gospel. Here's what it is. Here's what it, I, th- this is it here. It's on display for you. Take it. This is it defined. Okay, now, now here's what happens in chapter four. We go from Paul defining the gospel for us to now he's going to say, this is how you, individual, Christian, church, this is how you display the gospel. One through three, here's the gospel defined. Four through six, here is the gospel displayed. Now, I want you to think about this as we jump into it here. That you are the showcase for the gospel. So so maybe I could ask it this way. Do you believe in the gospel of chapter one through three? If you do, is that gospel being displayed in your life? Now, now here's what happens in in chapter four through six. There's only been one imperative so far, one command in the book of Ephesians. Only one time as God, as Paul, God through Paul said, you do this. This is a command. This isn't like an optional thing. This is a, you do it. Okay, only one time in three chapters. That one time is in, in chapter 2, 12, or 11 and 12. And, and here's the one thing Paul commands us to do. To remember what we were before Christ what Christ has done, and now what we are. So the only thing he's commanded us to do in three chapters is remember the gospel. That's it. Okay, now in four through six, I mean, the stream of imperatives widen. I mean, they turn into a river that's flowing really rapidly now. And so we get imperative after imperative, command after command. And here's what these commands do for us. They start to steer our life into a display of the gospel. 
They start to take our lives and they start to, they kind of start to steer us and move us toward a life that's consistent with this gospel that we've been defining. Okay, so that's what these imperatives do. They are leading us to life. They are leading us to the gospel display. Okay, so that's where we are. Now, now to set the context in chapter four, here's what we need to do. Um, we've got to jump back in and ask this question. The context is the church. Okay, so this letter is being written to a church. So, so this is how we're going to have to get to chapter four. This question. Do you love the church? Let me just ask you that question. Do you love the church? Okay, we could go broad level and talk about the church universal. All believers, all time, in every place. Do you love the church universal? Willing to give for it, sacrifice for it? Are we willing to plant churches for it? Okay, how about this one? Do you love the church locally? Do you love it? Do you love the church and, and, and here's the angst with this. And, and by the way, let me preface what I'm about to say by saying that I'm not calling for anybody to make Stonegate their deal. I mean, if this fit, I mean, there's a thousand different expressions within a 50 mile radius of us. I mean, you can get every sort of flavor of how the church is expressed that you want. So this may not be your flavor, but you need to find a place that preaches a good gospel. It's the way into the kingdom and how you progress in the kingdom. Both of those that it, you preach a good gospel and you need to find a place to give your life to. So even if it's not this place, you need to find a place. But, but here's the angst this morning. The, predom- or the dominant view of how people in our culture, view, like how we view the church, is shaped by one of the, the major cultural themes. One of the dominant cultural themes. And that dominant cultural theme that, that affects how we view the church is this word consumerism. Okay, so, so here's what consumerism does to us. If, if we were to ask the question, do you have a church home? I mean, do you love a church? Here's the answer that, that, that I get back consistently. Um, I, I, yeah, I, I, but I don't love like one church. I love like nine of them. I mean, it's not like a one. I, I love a bunch of them. And so here's what we do. And listen, we do this without even knowing it because it's the air we breathe. Consumerism is just the toxic air that we all are breathing. And and so here's what happens. We jump over here because we really like this preacher. And then we jump over here because we really like this worship guy. And then we jump over here because they've got a great kids thing going on. Then we jump over here because they've got great small groups. And and here's what we've just done when we do that. We take ourselves out from under the authority of any of those places. We take our commitment away from all of those places And consumers turn us, like this consumerism theme in our culture, turns us from being great investors into the kingdom of God through the local church, and it turns us into leeches. You know what a leech does? They latch on and suck exactly what they need off, and then they move on. And and that's what it turns us into. We go from being great investors into the kingdom of God to this consumeristic mindset that says, you know what, I'll just take a little, I'll just suck a little bit from that place, a little bit from this one. I'll just make sure all of my needs are met and then I'll move on. Okay, now here's the angst, is that is not the way Christ views his church. And that's not the way God would have us view the church. Okay, now now you start to see this in Acts 20. Um, Paul is talking to the elders in Ephesus. And here's what he says to them in Acts 20, 28. He says, you need to pay careful attention to yourself and to the flock in Ephesus and to the local church. And then he says this at the end of that verse. He says, because this church, that church has been bought with the blood of Christ. Okay, now, now see what's happening there. 
Paul is saying that, that God loves his church enough to send his son to die for it. He loves his church enough to send his son to be slayed on a cross to create it. That's the affection God has for his people. Okay, so the angst, and you see this clearly in the book of Ephesians. If you look at, at chapter 2, um, or let's go to chapter 1, um, verse 22. Here's what you see in chapter 1, 22. You see that, that God's saying that, that I have made Christ head over all things, and I've given him to the church. And then he says this little phrase at the end of that verse, kind of into 23. He says, which is my body. So, so he's calling the church his body. So Christ is the head and, and the body is the church. Church universal made up of all these local expressions that we are the body of Christ. Now, now think about that and you, like, get this imagery here. We all love our body, right? Now, now we may not look real great, right? But we still love our body. You may not really like your legs, you may wish they're a little longer, a little different shape. You may not like the bruise on it, the impurity. You, you may not like your leg, but you love your leg. And if you don't believe me, you watch a guy come through that door with a large knife and say, I want your leg. Every one of we're throwing chairs. I mean, we're throwing Rodney in front. Take his leg, right? I mean, we're doing anything possible to make sure our leg stays on when a guy comes through with a large knife, Right? Why? Because we love our leg. It may not be the prettiest leg, but we love our leg. And God is saying, that's the affection I have for my church. I'll throw chairs. I'll do whatever it takes to protect my church. It's my body. I mean, do you view the church that way? Right? I mean, do we have this sort of an angst for the church? Okay, later on in, in the book of Ephesians, in, in chapter 5, we'll get there eventually. Um, God's going to say that, that here's how I relate to the church. As a husband relates to his bride and loves and gives and sacrifices and cherishes and nourishes his bride, that's what I think about my church. Now, does that align with how you think about the church? Now, I, I have this, this hope for Stonegate people that we would grow to be great churchmen. People who love the church like Christ loves his church. That, that we would have that sort of an affection for the church. Now, let me kind of throw this last one in there. Look at verse, or chapter 3, verse 10. And, and this is one of the reasons that the church is so precious to God and ought to be so precious to us. And if it's not, we need to repent of that. Okay, look at chapter 3, verse 10. Here's what... God says through Paul about the church, that through the church, you see it, chapter, chapter 3, verse 10, that through the church, the manifold, the, the multicolored, the many-colored wisdom of God, the glory of God, so that this multicolored glory of God, wisdom of God, might now be made known to the rulers and authority in the heavenly places. Here's what the church, this is what Paul is saying. This is what the church does. The church is the visible display of the gospel of God. That is what the church is. That's what the church does. The church makes known this multicolored glory of God, the gospel of God. So the church is the visible display of the gospel. This is the church. It's the visible display. Okay, so this is what that means, that you are the showcase of the gospel. This is your role in life is to showcase it. Okay, now he's going to start walking through all this in Ephesians 4, 5, and 6. That you are the display of the gospel. So it's like Paul saying this. 
that if you want people to take your gospel seriously, let them see that in your life. And if they don't see it in your life, they're going to know it's a joke. If you want to say that the gospel is powerful, let them see a powerful gospel in you. If you want to tell them that the gospel changes things, then you've got to display that it has changed you. That we become this visible showcase, this visible display of the gospel. This is what the church does. That's what the church is. Okay, now this is what, where we pick it up in Ephesians 4 verse 1. You remember, he's writing to the church, and here's what he says. Verse 1. I therefore. Okay, now that therefore is going to be a link back to the gospel, what he's defined in chapter 1 through 3. So that therefore is gospel defined. Because of this gospel, I'm about to tell you some things. So I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord. Now, I love that he just kind of throws that in again, that he's sitting in prison as he writes this, because Paul is not um, that coach. I don't know how many of you have had that coach. I mean, we're talking like the track coach, right? That, uh, that's telling you to run harder, do this a little bit different. You need to pattern your race a little bit different. And, and the problem with the track coach is, is he's the guy that's eating the Krispy Kreme donut and has never sniffed a track, but somehow just got thrown into the coach, right? Y'all ever had that coach? Yeah, we've all had that coach. My track coach in high school was an offensive lineman, right? I mean, he'd never run a combined 200 yards in his life, I guarantee you. And he's the track coach. Okay, now Paul is not that guy, though. Paul is saying, I know the costs that follow the gospel. I am a prisoner of this gospel. I am not the guy eating the Krispy Kreme telling you to run hard. I am the guy sitting in prison telling you the gospel's worth it. So he starts out, I therefore, a prisoner of the gospel, a prisoner for the Lord. Then he goes on to say this, and you might circle this word urge. He says this, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of this calling, worthy of the gospel. I urge you to walk that way. Here's what he's saying. Okay, so big picture, the church is the visible display of the gospel. Now, now let's zero in, and here's what he's saying. And it's going to take him the rest of Ephesians to unpack this, but here's what he's saying. You walking in the gospel is how you display the gospel. Okay, now don't miss this. It's by you walking in the gospel that you display the gospel. That's how it's done. So if you want to know how to be a showcase of the gospel, here's what it means for you. That you walk in the gospel. Now here's where Ephesians is going to take us. Okay, Ephesians is going to take us into marriage. That in our marriage, we walk in the gospel as a visible showcase. It's going to take us into work ethic. It's going to take us into how we deal with authority in our life. How we parent as kids. How we respond to parents. It's going to take us into our view of money. It's going to take us into the church. Okay, now this is where it goes into chapter 4. Okay, at the end of chapter 4, he's going to say this, that you display the gospel personally by walking in the gospel in the midst of your purity. So the gospel, it's displayed through through the purity that it's created. Okay, that's 17 through the end of the chapter, or in chapter 4. Okay, now in the middle of chapter 4, he's going to say this. This is going to be next week for us. That we display the gospel. We do that by using our diversity, all the gifts in this room, to build the church. Okay, now this week, here's what he's saying. That we display the gospel, this is how it's done. We display the gospel by walking in unity. That's what he's about to say. Okay, now look at what he says here. He says, I urge you. It's not optional. It's not an optional thing. 
urge lifts us out of optional territory into command territory. He is saying, I urge you. This is, this is, there, there's urgency associated, there's weight associated, there's an importance associated with it. There is the glory of God at stake with this. I urge you, and then he's going to say this, to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, worthy of your calling. Worthy of the gospel. Okay, so, so let me define what it means to walk worthy of the gospel. It would mean something like this. To walk in a manner worthy of the calling means developing a pattern of life that is consistent with what God has saved you to be. Developing a pattern of life that's consistent with what God has saved you to be. So developing. Okay, to develop anything in your life takes a lot of determination. Amen? You don't just wake up with a new habit. Developing a habit and a pattern takes a determined effort that I'm going to wake up today and this is going to be it. I'll sweat for this. I'll bleed. I'll do whatever it takes to walk in this way. So, So we develop. It takes a determined. Developing it is not batting 150, right? Developing is not I'm in for a day and out for a week. Developing it is I'm consistent. I am steadily walking in the gospel. Uh, one day in, five days out is flirting with the gospel, not walking in the gospel. So, so he's saying that there's a consistent, okay, so you've got this pattern developed, right? You've got this pattern, this way of life that is developed. And, and this, look at that last phrase there. That reflects what God has saved you to be. And, and so when, when we talk about walking in the gospel, all of these commands, okay, all of these commands that Paul's about to unfold for us. The command to walk in the gospel. It's not Paul saying you need to walk in and like God's going to make you this new man. Walking in the gospel means this. That we walk consistent with the new man that God has created. Does that make sense? The gospel creates a new man and now it's our job to walk in that new man. And the gospel moves us to becoming that. So holiness is not us trying to be something different. Holiness is trying for us to be what God has created us to be. That's the idea. So we're walking in a manner worthy of the gospel. Okay, now look at verse 3. Because he's about to unfold specifically what this means for us today. Verse 3. This is the specific way that we walk in the gospel today. Verse 3. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So, so today, the point in, of one through six is, is Paul saying, you want to walk worthy of the gospel, worthy of the calling? Here's what that means for you. You display the gospel by walking in gospel-wrought unity. You display the gospel by walking in unity. So, okay, so here's, here's what this means. That we display the gospel in one through six by how we care for, how we protect, how we give life away in the context of the local church. That, that's how we do it. This letter is written to a church, and, and Paul's saying, you need to be eager to maintain unity there. So we display the gospel, we walk in the gospel by walking in this unity that the Holy Spirit provides, by walking in this unity that the gospel creates. Okay, so let me, let me point out a couple of things about verse 3 here. You might circle the word unity of the spirit, or maybe that word spirit in there. Because here's what Paul's saying, that unity is created by God. So so when you think, okay, think about this. What is it that makes a 60-year-old man in this room that has nothing in common with a 20-year-old in this room? 
I mean, they don't do the same things. Their hobbies don't look the same. You take them outside of this, they probably don't like each other very much, right? What makes them come into a church and worship together? What makes men and women who are so much different, right? I mean, the the Mars, Venus, I, I agree with it. Okay, so what makes them come into a place and worship? God creates that. It's this unity that's born in the Spirit of God. The Spirit creates that unity. Okay, now you take it back to, to Ephesians chapter 2, and this is what the gospel does. This is, what, this is what Paul's point is in the second half of Ephesians 2. He is saying that Jews and Gentiles hate each other. I mean, they hate each other, right? I mean, there is no fond emotions going back and forth here. I mean, it's a vice versa relationship, they, mutual. Okay, so this is the, the depth of how much they hated each other. If a Gentile woman was in the middle of labor, they called it her hour of need. And if you've seen a, a, a woman in labor, especially with no epidural, it is the hour of need, right? I mean, they start to look at you with that crazy eye. You know what that crazy eye is saying? That crazy eye is saying, if you don't do something right now to help me, you're dead. That crazy eyes, what's going on? And, and this was the law for a Jewish person. That they could not even help a Gentile woman in her hour of need and labor because it was going to bring another Gentile into the world. Okay, that's the depth of, of this hatred. Okay, now, now this is Paul's point in, in chapter 2, 14 and 15. That, that Jesus has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. He's broken it down. This is what it says he did that for. That he might create one new man. No more Jew Gentile. He is creating one new man in place of the two. It is only God that could break down the rift between a Jew and a Gentile. And it is only God that could break down the rifts in this room. It's only God that can do that. It's only God that can break down um, the rifts in marriages. It's only God that can do those things. That is the gospel's job. That's what it does. The gospel breaks down every barrier to unity. So so if your barrier is race, you're a fool because the gospel breaks it down. I mean, the gospel does not see your race. The gospel places no significance on your race. If your barrier is um, social status, your possessions maybe, the, the gospel places no significance on, on your social status. If it's that you're a Democrat or a Republican, and, and now we get a little touchy, right? It places no significance on which one of those you are. It breaks down every barrier. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile. There is one race of people in the gospel, and that's the people that are the redeemed. That's it. It breaks down every barrier. That is the role of the gospel. Okay, now, now this is where it gets interesting. Look back at, at verse 3. So, so the Spirit creates it. The gospel creates it. But then it tells us we've got the command to maintain it. You see that? So the gospel creates. And now we come along and by His grace, we have the job of maintaining unity in this room. Within the church. We have the job of doing that. Spirit creates. By His grace, we maintain it. Okay, so, so this is where I, I think there's this point um, in, in the book of Ephesians where if you're going to put this in medical terms, the doctor walks in and he's got like a clipboard in one hand and a scalpel in the other one. And, and all of a sudden this connection hits that uh, that scalpel is probably there to fix what's wrong on that clipboard. I mean, I, I might have a problem when the doctor walks in, scalpel in hand, Right? 
And then you start to look up and you see that that guy doesn't even have anesthesia. I mean, this is about to be painful, right? This is where we are in Ephesians, where this is about to get really painful for us. Okay, when you're talking about unity, okay, everybody look at me right here. When we're talking about unity, isn't this a difficult thing? Okay, we're talking about what happens when they stab you in the back. What happens when they gossip behind you? What happens when they kick you and they don't even feel real bad about it? What happens um, when they bring out the sledgehammer and try to destroy you? I mean, what happens when they slander you? What, it gets pretty difficult in those days, doesn't it? And this is what Paul's saying. It's our job to maintain it. And we, now he's going to give us some direction here. Here's how we maintain unity in the body. Here comes the scalpel. He says we first have to value it. Look at that word eager. Eager is this intense, I want it. Eager is, I value this thing. I'm not just going to let this slip away. I am in for the long haul here. I'm going to display the gospel here. It is, I value unity. Do you value unity? I mean, do you value that? Do you, do you value that above your rights? Do you value that above you getting smashed by somebody else? I mean, how much do you value unity? He says, we've got to be eager for it. I mean, we've got to be all about unity. We've got to value this. Okay, so I want you to look around this room. Look at some faces in this room. Uh, you go ahead and look around. Just, just find you some faces. You might know some, you might not. When you look around this room, it, it, when you look at fa- I want you to look at faces in this room. If right now you have no problem with people in this room, th- I mean, there's no angst. There's no, like, I want to go punch him right now. There's no, if there's none of that, here, there's two reasons why that would be. Number one, you haven't known them long enough. Number two, you don't know them well enough. Those are the two reasons. If that has not happened, that's the only two reasons that would say why that is. Because if you live with anybody long enough and you know anybody well enough, you're going to be ready to throw blows at some point, right? I mean, that's coming for all of us. Listen, it's coming for every one of us in here. By God's grace, we're going to do life for a long time together. We're going to see some of our young guys get married in here. We're going to bury some of the rest of us, right? I mean, we're going to live life together for a long time by the grace of God. And as we live together, there are going to be days that we want to kill each other. There are going to be days that you want to kill me. There's going to be days that I want to kill you. And there's going to be days that you want to kill each other. That's how it's going to work. Okay, now here's, here's what valuing unity looks like. Okay, so, so I lived in a student ministry for eight years, right? I'm, in, I'm with 7th through 12th graders trying to teach this, right? Okay, so, so I, I don't know how many conversations I, I heard that sounded like this. You would not believe what they did. You ever have one of those? You would not. I mean, they stole my guy. They stole my girl. They, I mean, they did something, right? And so they said this. They said, I mean, they did whatever they did. And, and here's what would follow that statement. I'm leaving. I can't do it. I cannot worship with them. They're in the same, I can't do it. No way that's happening. I'm out of here. I'll go find a different church, do a different deal. And you know what? Every one of us in the flesh are just like that. Every one of us. Every one of us, when a relationship runs into us, which it's gonna happen, 
when it runs into every one of us, want to withdraw, pull back, and, and this is our option. Here's option number one. We want to run. That, that is what we want to do when unity is at stake. When somebody slams into us, option one, and this is every one of us, what our flesh wants to do is we want to run from it. And so, I mean, countless conversations, it sounded like that. And you know what was amazing to me? Every one of those conversations, I mean, it was, the, and you just fill in the blank here. It was, they did this, they did that. And I, I, like inside, I'm thinking, well, you know what's so weird? Is I've had like five people tell me the same thing about you. I, I mean, I, I'm wanting to say that, fill in that blank, it's you. I mean, what's the problem? So can we all just hold the mirror in front of ourselves and know this, that the problem in this place is not just them. The problem is also you. The problem is also me. I mean, it's all of us. We're, we are the problem, not just them. Okay, so, so this is how that conversation with the eighth grader would always turn out. I'd look at him and I'd say this. Okay, you can run. I know that's what you want to do. I know it's easiest for you. I know it just feels right for you. I know all that stuff is at play. But if you run, here's what you do. If you run, you retard your growth. You retard your growth, and you do not display the gospel. So you can run if you want, but you are running right away from the gospel. Here's option two. You don't have to run. You can respond with the gospel. So when they stab you in the back, here's what you do. You apply the gospel to your wound, and you apply the gospel to your own stabbing in the back. And when they gossip, you apply the gospel to their gossip, and you apply it to your gossip. And so when they run over you, you apply it to them running over you, and then you apply it to your running over other people. So you've got one of two options. You'll run or you'll respond with the gospel. And listen, if you do not value unity in a place like this, you will always run. That is why people show up at a different church every six weeks. Because in about six weeks, we run into something we don't like, and so we run from it. Rather than responding with the gospel to people. Okay, now this is what Paul's about to do. He's about to say you value it, you're eager to maintain it. And then look at verse 2. He's going to give us four things here that are just prerequisites. So, so, okay, when you think of valuing unity, that's a little more passive. But now when you think of, of what it takes to achieve unity, that is an active pursuit. It takes us actively pursuing unity for it to be maintained and kept in sinful people like you and I. An active pursuit. So he gives us four things here, ways that we can actively pursue unity. Ways that the gospel would steer our effort, aim our efforts toward unity. Okay, so look at these words in, in verse 2. He says this, and scalpels are coming out. No anesthesia. Here it goes. He says, with all humility. I mean, how many of us have that one down, right? And so humility is seeing yourself accurately. That's what humility is. It is seeing yourself in light of God. Okay, here's what pride is. Pride is an ant standing next to a flea and thinking he's real sophisticated and got life together. Humility is an ant standing next to an elephant realizing that just one kind of misstep from the elephant and he's dead. Okay, so now, now look at what this does, though. Because in, in pride, here's what we do. We compare ourselves with other people thinking, yeah, I mean, we, we look pretty good compared to the fleas. But, but when we compare ourselves in the light of God, here's what we see. That we're still an ant, right? I mean, we get to see ourselves accurately. 
I mean, it gives us an accurate view of self that in light of God, God is holy, we are sinful. It helps us see accurately who we are. Humility is this disposition of the heart. It's a gospel heart that says, you know what? I am more sinful than I could ever imagine. I deserve nothing from God but bad. But in the gospel, he has loved me and given me more than I could dare dream. That's the disposition of a humble heart. Okay, now this is what's interesting. The people in Ephesus, like in the Roman Empire, they hated humility. I mean, they would use that word and attach it to a slave, people that were inferior. And you know what? Our culture doesn't like it either. You go to any counselor that is not gospel-centered, and here's what they're going to tell you. You need to be more self-confident. You need to have a little better self-esteem. And if I'm guessing, we have bought into that in here. That we just need a little more self-confidence. That, that's our problem. A little more self- Think about, okay, let me just beg you to consider the Bible here and teach your kids something different. Think about what those words mean. Think about self-confidence. It is saying you are confident in yourself, in an ant, right? That, that's what you're confident. Think about self-esteem, that you are esteeming yourself. That's what the Bible calls pride. Self-confidence is the problem. Right? I mean, that, that, that is our problem. And so can, will you teach your kids something different? That what they need is not a confidence in their self. What they need is a confidence in an all-powerful, wise, holy, good God who works for really sinful, not-so-sharp people. That's what we need. Is we need confidence in God, not in ourself. We have nothing to be confident in. We are the ant. God is the elephant. We need confidence in the elephant that works for his people. That's what we need. Our problems, nine out of ten of our relational problems in this room, will be a result of pride. And so unless God grows us in humility, unity will always be impossible. Humility is the heart that says, I merit nothing. Nothing. I deserve nothing good. And God is so gracious. So let me ask you the question. How, how are you doing in that one? You a humble guy? Humble lady? Hey, guys, can I ask your spouse how humble you are? Are, are you willing to, to receive correction? Are you willing to walk with somebody when they point out errors, things that need correction in your life? I mean, are you a humble man? Are you a humble lady? It's impo- Unity in this place will be impossible unless God gives us the grace to, to get humble. Okay, then he goes on, next word. He uses this word gentleness. And listen, gentleness is not a, uh, gentleness is not, that doesn't mean that you're a softy, right? I mean, gentleness has this idea of strength wrapped in a gospel-centered way. So so maybe you could picture the the bully on the playground, right? And and so the bully is strong, but he's not gospel-centered. So the bully uses his, his strength to smash people, When the gospel comes along and says, use your strength to protect people. So so gentleness is the outworking of humility. Humility is the inner disposition. Gentleness is the frontal face of it. And so gentleness is this strength wrapped in the gospel. Maybe you could think of it this way. When a guy punches you, how much strength does it take to punch a guy back? Not a whole lot, right? I mean, it takes a lot to hurt the guy. But it doesn't take a whole lot to throw the punch back. And if you bench press about 90 pounds, I would recommend not throwing punches back. His are going to hurt a lot more than yours, right? 
and so I wouldn't go there. And, and so, but it doesn't take a strong person to throw a punch back. You know what it takes a strong person to do? When he's punched, not to punch back. Tell me that doesn't take a stronger person. Tell me that is not strength wrapped in the gospel. That's what gentleness is. It has the power to crush and the, and the gentleness to hold, right? And so let me ask you this. Are you a gentle person? See, gentleness is, is willing to look over wrongs. Gentleness is willing to take a punch and not punch back. Is that you? I mean, is your natural reflex when you get punched to punch? I mean, is that the natural reflex of the heart? A gospel heart, a heart that the gospel has washed over is humble. It's gentle. And look at this next word. He uses the word patient. Now, I love that word. This is kind of the literal Greek rendering of it. It's long-suffering. It is the ability to suffer long with somebody. How many of us need a little more of that, right? To suffer long with people. I mean, it has the idea that people are going to wrong you because we're all sinful. It's going to happen. It has this idea that we will be people who suffer a long time with them. Even when they wrong us, even when they stab us in the back, even when they gossip, even when they slander, even when they punch, even when they kick, regardless of what they do, we will be patient with them. That's the idea. And can I just, I I, want to just ask you to just think about and reflect and remember how patient God has been with you. Will you do that? Think about how patient God has been with you. Um, last week, Laura bounces into to my office. It might have been two weeks ago. And here's what she says. We've got to celebrate. I mean, she brought out the sparkling grape juice for this thing, right? I mean, this was a massive moment. I, I'm trying to think, I mean, what just happened? I mean, did, did cancer just get cured? Are we going to the Bahamas? What are we doing, right? And so uh, she says, uh, Caleb has just rolled from his stomach like, to his back. I mean, we've got a big day that just happened. I mean, he has got the rolling thing that go, that, that's going on. Okay, so here was my response. I stand up. I'm giving it a standing O, right? I mean, I'm a proud dad. I mean, this is the first step to the, to the NFL, right? I mean, I'm going to have him running sprints next week. We're ready to go. And, and so, so I stand up. I give it the standing O. We go into the room, and I'm ready to watch. I mean, we're cheering him on as he's doing his thing. I mean, he's got the slowly, I mean, he's got it down. This guy has got it going. Okay, now, now picture this. That is the heart of our patient dad who says, even, I mean, even though you're on a liquid diet and have no teeth, you're in a diaper and can't even go to the bathroom by yourself. The heart of our patient dad says, I will celebrate every little step. Now tell me if that's your heart. If your heart is with other people, I will celebrate every step. They may be on the liquid diet. They may be in the diaper. They may be spitting up all over everybody when anybody gets close to them. But I'll celebrate every step with them. That's God's heart for you. And when the gospel starts to wash over your heart, that becomes your heart to people. That you're patient with them. An impatient Christian is an oxymoron. And I kind of want to stress the moron piece of that, right? (laughs) It's a fruit of the Spirit. 
And if the Spirit is not growing us in patience, there is something seriously wrong. Daddies, if your family has to walk with padded shoes around the house, there's a problem. Ladies, if your family has to walk with padded shoes, there's a problem. The gospel is not being displayed. The gospel is not washing over your heart. You are taking God's patience to you and making a mockery of it. So he says we're patient. Okay, and then he uses this last word here. Now, I, I love this one. He says that you're enduring in love. You see that phrase in verse 2, the end of the, the verse there? Enduring in love. And, and here's what I like about that. Because it takes patience and stretches it out. So if patience is long-suffering, enduring in love is like suffering longer than long. So it's got like no guarantee that they're going to change. No guarantee that, that God will wash the gospel over them. But it's still, I'm hanging in there. I value unity enough where I'll suffer longer than the long. I'll suffer for, for forever if I have to. I'm not giving up. I'll stick in this. I'll stay in this because I value displaying the gospel. And I love the last phrase there, in love. Have you ever noticed it's, it's a lot easier to love the ambiguous them people than it is these people? You ever notice that? That it's much easier to love those people than these people. And look around the room. Look around the room one more time. These are the people God has given you to love. These. Not an ambiguous them in Africa. These people God has given you to love. These. Okay, now, now let me stop and l- let me hit this one more time. You've got, the, you've got the ability. You can do one or the other. You can run or you can respond with the gospel. And I want you to consider what most of us have done in our life. Most of us have run. It's the reason that 90% of the people in our inner circle, probably all the people in our inner circle, the people we do life with consistently, they all look like us, dress like us, think like us, feel like us, spin like us. The people in our circle are just like you. And you know why they're just like you? Because you have stiff-armed people who are not. And may God start to kind of get this into our heart that we have got to be people who have no stiff arms up, who allow difficult people in our life. Because listen, that is how we grow in humility, gentleness, patience, and enduring love. We grow in those areas by God placing these people, difficult people who don't think like you, spin like you, feel like you, do anything like you, and him placing those people in your life for your benefit. That is how you grow in those areas. And as long as you can, and listen, you can be in this church and stay here forever and keep a stiff arm up to people who aren't like you. And God is saying, no, you cannot keep the arm up. It's about unity. You've got to bring people in that are not like you so God can grow you in these areas. These people are the arena for God to give you grace. These people right here. I'll take that as an amen, right? Okay, last thing and then then we'll wrap it up here. Last point, look at verses uh, four through six. The gospel is not just the pattern the gospel is the power. Now hear that. The gospel is not just the pattern. The gospel is the power. Okay, look at, look at verse 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. 
This, this verse is about to give us seven anchors for the gospel. Seven gospel anchors to weight you down for the sake of unity. And listen, your ability to maintain unity in this place is dependent upon you constantly, continually responding to the gospel, to these anchors. Allowing these anchors to be weighty in your life is the way unity is maintained. Okay, so let me, let me repackage those seven one words. You see the seven one words in four through six? Let me package those seven words with the gospel to give you the, the anchors that hold you down in the midst of wanting to run. Here are the anchors. Look, look at verses four through six and follow along. Look at the one words here. That we have got one God. That one God is just and he is gracious. And we have got a massive problem with that one God who is one day coming back to judge. He reigns and he's coming back to judge. That one God, we've got a massive problem with because we're hopelessly sinful people. That's our problem, that we have sinned, that we're in active rebellion against him. But here is the beauty of God. He inserts hope, one hope, by responding, by sending his one and only son to bear our wrath, deserved, aimed at us on the cross and to show his power over sin in the resurrection. So he inserts hope into the world. Now when we respond in faith to that, with one faith in this one God who has given us one hope, when we respond in faith to that, everything changes. And faith is trusting in and treasuring in Jesus. That's what faith is. And when we respond in faith, here's the beauty of it. God sends his one spirit to indwell us. And so now we have the Holy Spirit inside of us. And that Holy Spirit breaks down all walls. That Holy Spirit unites us. It creates one body. So we've got the one spirit now creating the one body. And listen, everybody in that body, there is no racial distinctions. There is no class distinctions. We all have one last name in that body. And that last name is the redeemed. That's all of our last names. We have one body. And here's the beauty of it. That one body has a common experience. We all have one baptism where we are thrown under the water, the old self dead, old self buried, and we are raised to walk in newness of life. The gospel creates a new person. And now we get the privilege for the rest of our days of living for the joy and pleasure of our one Lord. That's the gospel. These are the anchors, these seven anchors that weight us down for unity. So I'll end with this. Here's how we respond to the gospel. Number one is we respond by remembering the gospel. This is how we continually respond to those anchors. We remember them. Remember how how humble Jesus was. Remember how patient he was with you. How gentle he was. How long he has suffered with you. Right? We remember that. And listen, when you remember, he's not just the pattern. He becomes the power when you remember. So we remember the gospel. And, And here's the second one. We repent. Do you need to repent of running, of stiff arming relationships? Do you need to repent of that? Do you need to look at your wife and say, I have not loved you like Christ has loved me? Look at your kids. I have not loved you like Christ has loved you or loved me. Do you need to repent of that? You would be amazed at the gospel conversations that might come in your family if you did that, if you initiated that. And and I want to give a tough statement to all of our married folks in here. I know that some of us have difficult marriages right now. And some of us have very easy marriages right now. 
Difficulty's coming for all of us. But I, I just want to throw this out to you, that you display the gospel not when your marriage is great. Who, who can't live well then? You display the gospel when you love your wife, your husband, like Christ has loved you when it's very difficult. That's when you get the beautiful opportunity to put the gospel on display for the world. So maybe we need to repent of, of prideful arrogance. And then last thing is we renew. That, that we make a covenant with God that we are in the church. We're not consumers. We're not going to be leeches who suck life out of, but we're going to be investors into the kingdom of God. So we're going to take the people of God, these people that God has joined us with, placed us within, and we're going to get to know people in here. And we're not just going to kind of know them, we're going to really know them. And we're going to know them for a long time. And we're going to open up our life to them. And we're going to live in front of them and with them. We're going to have them into our house. We're going to pray for them. We're going to get in home groups with them. We are going to live life with people opening up our life for them to see and for us to see them. We're going to live with them. So maybe we need to renew our covenant. I mean, that starts with the inside here. That starts with your family. That starts with your home group. That starts with you and the church. You renewing your covenant that I will display the gospel with gospel wrought unity, not run. I'll respond with the gospel. Man, I have such huge hopes for this body. I want you to know that. I've got huge hopes of what God might do here. And you know where that all starts? Is us being people who have unity, that value it, that pursue it, that run after it. Let's pray. I'm telling you, it's felt like a little scalpel to me this week where Paul has just um, gently and patiently started to, to cut into my heart and apply the gospel so that some of these blemishes can turn into beautiful displays of the, of the power of the gospel. And, and so let me just ask you, where does Paul need to cut into your heart and where does the gospel need to be applied? Maybe it's with kids, maybe it's with marriages, maybe it's with people in this room. Where are you not walking in humility? Where do you need to be more gentle? Where do you need more patience? Where do you need the, just the resources and the power to say, God, I need to suffer longer. I need to endure longer here. And are you doing that? Do you value unity like God does? Do you value the church like God does? I pray that you would. I pray that you would. God, um, we love you. And God, I thank you for your word. And I thank you for how it convicts, how it lovingly confronts, how it changes us, how your great gospel has made us new men. And then your great word gets to focus our efforts, gets to shape our life into the kind of men, the kind of women that you've created us to be. So God, I pray for that. God, I pray that as we look forward in the book of Ephesians, that you would be so gracious with us. God, that you would be patient with us as we walk into these things. It's in your good name that we pray. Amen. Why don't you